Please remain standing, if you can, for the entirety of Psalm 77, our scripture reading this morning. To the choir master, according to Jaduthan, a psalm of Asaph. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. The psalm is 20 verses of richness. And I feel a little bit like Mark Twain. Uh, There's a quote attributed to him where he wrote a letter to a friend and he said, sorry for writing such a long letter. Uh, I didn't have time to write a shorter one. And, and I feel a little bit like that this morning. So I'm going to try to keep it tight, uh, but bear with me. So when I was growing up, I would watch certain movies basically on repeat over and over and over again until I would essentially memorize the lines. Um, and Home Alone was, was one of these movies. Um, so it, for me, it wasn't a Christmas movie. It was a 365 every day, whenever you felt like it, Home Alone's worth watching. And so my poor mom uh, would have to deal with her six-year-old son walking around saying things like, keep the change, you filthy animal. And uh, she was patient. And so what, what's interesting about these movies is that at the core, they're, they're about a boy who's been forgotten. Twice. Right? Not just once, but twice. And, and part of me wonders if the McAllisters are fit to be parents, right? And some of you that are parents are thinking of me and you're saying, clearly you don't have children. Uh, otherwise, you wouldn't make such snap judgments. And so I, I think what's interesting about Home Alone is it's this kind of lighthearted portrayal 
of a really difficult spiritual experience. When the one who is meant to, who is uh, intended to account for you, has forgotten you. And as we saw in the last couple of weeks, and as we'll see today, uh, there's this sense in which the Psalms talk about this experience of being forgotten. If you remember from Psalm 42 last week, we saw the psalmist cries out, why have you forgotten me? And so this experience of feeling forgotten, it's, it's not just one that believers feel. Everybody, Christian, non-Christian, whoever you are, you've felt forgotten. One pastor tells a story about a, a woman who was in his office who was pouring out the mess of her life to him. And this woman wasn't a Christian by any means. Uh, and at, at one point she said something that kind of caught his attention and, and he just paused her and he said, hey, Carrie, do you pray? To which she quickly replied, no, never. And as he waited, uh, a smirk came on her face and, and she kind of caveated it a little bit by saying, well, sometimes I wish upwards. And, and this pastor said, how helpful, how, uh, how good that distinction is between what prayer is and wishing upwards. Now, uh, sociologists have shown that, that most Americans, um, when they're talking about their religious beliefs, are some sort of what you could call a deist, which means that the God that they believe in is kind of distanced and detached from this world, uh, not really meddling or caring much about their everyday affairs. But we all know if you've gone through a troubling time, that's not going to cut it. We don't need a distant deity. We need a God who is intervening and involved, who can actually show up and do something when times are tough. A wish upwards won't suffice. And so what's unique about Christianity is that Christianity is based on what we would call revelation. Now, when I say revelation, all I mean is something that's been hidden has been made known. It's been revealed. When you meet somebody for the first time, you'll, you'll often ask them a bunch of questions. Something like, where are you from? What kind of work do you do? What do you like? What do you not like? What are your digits? I don't know. Like you might ask these kind of questions. And, and what you're really asking for is revelation. Reveal yourself to me. And Christianity is, is fundamentally different from every other world religion in that we base our beliefs on a God who has entered into this world, a God who has spoken and acted in such a way that we can trust him. And so as we look at this God, this record of this God working and acting in history, showing up to judge and to heal, to speak and to save, we have kind of a basis for our hope, a basis that's much more firm, a basis that's more stable, a basis that isn't simply wishing upwards. A philosopher named Nicholas Wolterstorff, who wrote a, a heartbreaking but excellent book called Lament for a Son, says this. One of the profoundest features of the Christian way of being in the world is remembering we are to hold the past in remembrance and not let it slide away. For in history, we find God. In history, we find God. This is the Christian view of Revelation. We don't wish upwards. We trust in a God who's come downwards. A God who's made himself known in history. 
And yet, as we'll see in Psalm 77, that doesn't leave us without our doubts. Psalm 77, written by Asaph, uh, is this psalm that kind of moves us from doubt to wonder. From doubt to wonder. And Asaph kind of structured it into two halves. And so in verses 1 through 9, we see that the psalmist, Asaph, as he's pouring out his heart, we see that he's in difficulty and depressed and doubting because he's in a day of trouble. But this transition happens And in verses 10 through 20, we see that he's marveling at the work of a wonderful God. And so we're going to actually see what was that hinge? What happened? What changed halfway through this psalm? And and what I want to submit to you and, and hopefully kind of defend throughout this sermon is that remembering moves us from doubt to wonder. So if you want to write down a main point, remembering moves us from doubt to wonder. Now, if you would join me as we look at this, psalms together, as, at this psalm together, um, you're going to need your Bible or the worship guide uh, that you got when you walked in because we're going to look closely at the text. Because I want to see how did Asaph and how do you and I move from doubt to wonder? All right, with that, look with me at verse 1. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. Now in the Psalms, this idea of the day of trouble, it's kind of this placeholder. It's, it's shorthand for a variety of difficulties and distressing experiences. And, and I've noticed, or I've, I've explained before, how the generality of the Psalms is actually really helpful for us. We don't hear specifics about what Asaph is going through because the Psalms were intended for you and I to copy and paste our day of trouble into the words of Psalm 77 and pray it as our own. And so as we look at how Asaph deals with his day of trouble, we realize, we notice that prayer arises out of trouble. The Nobel Prize winner, Isaac Bashevis Singer, says this. I only pray when I'm in trouble, but I'm in trouble all the time, and so I pray all the time. And he's getting at the same thing that Asaph is getting at, is that we deal with our day of trouble through prayer. Now let's look at how he does this. In verse 1, he cries out to God, trusting that God will hear him. That he will, as the other psalmists, psalms say, incline his ear. And, in, and he goes on to, to actually seek the Lord in his trouble rather than an exit from his trouble. In verse 3, he remembers God, but he moans. He meditates, but he becomes exasperated. In verse 5, he remembers the good old days with nostalgia. In verse 6, he tries to sing, but he finds himself musing on his troubles. And I think verse 2 kind of summarizes the whole thing when despite the fact that he is seeking the Lord, his soul refuses to be comforted. Have you been there? Have you been in this place where Asaph is, where you've done all the right things, you've, you've read CBR, you've, you've prayed, you've showed up to community group, you've sought wise counsel, on and on and on, and yet you still find yourself in a day of trouble. That's where Asaph is. 
In verse four, he says this, you hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. Now, I remember the first time that I prayed Psalm 77 verse four was when I was in college. And, and this was a time in my life when I was trying to get up super early in the morning uh, to do kind of my, my Bible reading and prayer, which really meant any time before noon. And, and so I would kind of drag myself out of bed all groggy and uh, why are you downcast Oh my soul? I'd be so tired. Uh, and I remember getting to this verse and, and having my eyes kind of squinting, couldn't even hold them open. It was probably like 11.45 a.m. And as I'm reading this psalm, I'm, I come to this verse and I see, wow, this is just what I need. How awesome the Lord knows my needs. Uh, I need to keep my eyes open. He holds them open for me. God, you're so great and kind. Now I need to eat some lunch. But as I studied this psalm uh, to preach this sermon, I realized that actually isn't the case. Asaph isn't in the early afternoon. It's evening and he cannot get a night's worth of sleep and he blames it on God. So rather than being kind of sentimental and sweet, the sentence is more about how Asaph is sleepless and speechless and it's all God's fault. And we don't really get to the root of his issue until we see these questions that he articulates in verses 7 through 9. So look at verse 7 with me. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? So you see a litany of six complaints, one after another, formulated into questions that he's launching at God. One after another, he portrays God as rejecting Fed up, stingy, angry. You could summarize them all by saying, God has forgotten him. Now, notice how true to life these questions really are. In, in our household, we kind of have this, this rule for our arguments. Now, we don't get into arguments, I promise. But if we did, this rule would be really helpful. Um, in our household, we have an, a rule that when we're arguing with one another, it's just not fair to use words like always and never, Right? But when we're hurt and when we're angry, it's easy to kind of absolutize and exaggerate our complaints, isn't it? And and we see he's doing that here. Look again at verse 7. He goes, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? On and on, he just kind of exaggerates his complaint before the Lord. But these doubts are not arbitrary. Asaph is actually holding God to his word. He's he's dealing with the, the Lord and he's saying, act in light of what you've said about yourself in your revelation. And so if you remember from Psalm 103, our call to worship, there's a there's a few verses in there that I think are significant. Psalm 103 says, He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. And then it goes into this: it says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, if you you know your Bible, you know that Psalm 103 in that point is actually quoting Exodus 34. And for the Old Testament authors, Exodus 34 becomes kind of like the John 3.16. 
It's just like, it's the go-to verse when you want to describe who God is. Because in Exodus 34, God, the Lord, Yahweh, defined what he was like to Moses. And he said he passed before Moses and he, he made known his ways to him. And so we could say that mercy and grace are God's signature moves. Slowness to anger and abounding in steadfast love are God's ways of his style of relating, if you will. And so when Asaph is complaining, he's complaining to this God who has made himself known in this way. And so his doubts are not about the existence of God. They're about the God who exists. This, this God who, is he really like he said he is? Is he really merciful and gracious? How slow is his anger? How abundant is his limitless love? He's taking God's very words from Exodus 34 and he's holding him before, he's holding those, those words before the Lord in questions and he's saying, hey, you said this, is it true? Because it doesn't seem like it. How can, given the day of trouble that I'm going through, how can I truly trust a God who is apparently all-powerful and all-loving given this situation? And I know as I say that, we've had the same question arise in our own hearts. These kind of questions, these kind of complaints are what come up to the surface when we're in our own day of trouble. And I think this is why in verse 3, Asaph says, when I remember God, I moan. Psalm 77, uh, the reason I'm preaching on it right now is because it has become a cherished prayer for my wife, Alana, and I. In, in recent months, uh, Alana has had some health problems, and we couldn't figure out what it was. Despite seeing doctor after doctor, we couldn't figure it out. And every doctor we'd go to would run a battery of tests, and they'd come back, and they'd smile, and they'd say, hey, you're healthy. To which we, who knew something was clearly not right, would respond with a mixture of anger and discouragement. That one more doctor couldn't figure out what was wrong. And so, not knowing what to do, not knowing how to go forward, we prayed. Because again, I said, prayer arises from trouble. But as we prayed, we felt like our prayers were being ignored. We felt like we were being forgotten by the God who has promised himself to us. So month after month, we, we felt like the ear of the Lord was closed. And one night when we were kind of at the end of our, our rope to some extent, we, we took our Bibles and, and we went underneath our carport and we opened up to Psalm 77 and we began taking these words as our very own and praying them to the Lord, especially lingering over the questions of verses 7 through 9. And as we did that, our situation didn't change. But, but there was a sense of confidence that, that welled up in us as we were laying our complaint before the God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Theologian Kelly Capick says this, Laments rise to the heavens as a strange combination of complaint, grief, questions, confusion, desire for rescue, and expectation of divine faithfulness. The Psalms teach us how to lament like that. Now, I want you to notice something about these questions, though. 
because uh, I think it's significant to notice that direct honesty takes precedence over doctrinal precision. Now, what I mean by that was Asaph's complaints, they weren't necessarily orthodox, but they were honest. And that matters. Because he was calling God's character to the carpet. And as he did that, there's, a, there's actually a sense of faith working even in this doubt. In order to be honest, in order to pour out these questions and these complaints to the Lord, there has to be a sense of faith that he will hear and potentially respond. So even in this doubt, there's a, a mingling of faith. Because, because who could complain to a pernicious God? Who could ever challenge a deceitful deity who says one thing and does another? And so there's a sense of faith in the fact that if I base my life on this revelation of who God says he is, then I might be able to cry out with holy complaint. Ellie Wiesel, the the Holocaust survivor and storyteller, says this, it is because a Jew remains attached to his God that he is permitted to question him. And so attached to his God, Asaph brings these doubts to voice. And as Asaph begins to articulate these questions and doubts that were swirling around in his heart and mind, he actually begins to say them out loud and give voice to them. And he has that experience that you and I know so well, where when things that have been in our own minds and hearts come out, we realize how kind of crazy they really sound. And I think that's part of what has helped him here. Because after he states his doubts and his questions, we're going to see that Asaph moves. He moves into remembering And his memory feasts on God's revelation and metabolizes it into wonder. And so look with me at these next verses, verses 10 through 12, and you'll see that the whole psalm kind of hinges on what happens here. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Now these verses are the the two that, that happen in the movement from doubt to wonder. This is kind of the bridge from doubt to wonder right here. And so it's remembering revelation that allows us to move through our doubts toward wonder. But notice something. Why is it that when Asaph remembered God before, he moaned, but now it's actually part of the remedy? I think part of it is because he's confessed his doubts. He's expressed his questions. He's addressed his heart. And as he's poured himself out before the Lord, he, his meditation turns from my troubles to your works. And when that happens, rather than washing up in doubt and self-pity, Asaph is pulled out into a sea of wonder. The tides turn. And so when he meditates within, searching his spirit, he moans. But when he meditates without, searching God's wonders, he's restored. Even the words of the psalm kind of show this shift in perspective. In verses 1 through 6, he uses words like I, me, my about, a tw- about 20 times. And then verses 11 through 20, the second half of the psalm, he uses words like you and your about 20 times. So even the grammar, even the syntax of the sentences shows this kind of shift from doubt to wonder. And Asaph hones in on specifics. It's not just generally remembering God or nostalgically reminiscing, but he's actually remembering specific works and wonders of God made known in his word and in his world. 
And so as he does this, he kind of conjures up a sense of wonder at who God is and how he works. And this is a distinctly Christian way of getting through our troubles. Remembering revelation. But as he begins to remember, Asaph sees that his life takes place in a bigger story. Now, in 2005, eBay held an auction. It was a, it was a fundraiser for a nonprofit. And in that auction, uh, the highest bidder was going to be written into a Stephen King novel to be killed. Okay, And so 76 bids were received, and the winner paid over $25,000 to see his name written as a victim in Stephen King's story. And what I love about that is it kind of shows this innate human desire to have a, a grander narrative than our little lives. And that's what Asaph does here. As he remembers, he begins to, rem- he begins to be reminded that his life is actually written into a broader story, this grander narrative of God speaking and acting in the world. And again, if, you, if you're familiar with the scriptures, you know that the story he recalls is the Exodus. He recalls the Exodus. Look with me at verses 15 through 19. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. So he's recalling the story of the, the parting of the Red Sea, right? And, and I love these verses because it's almost, there's something almost childlike about them, right? It's almost like how every child thinks that their dad is a superhero and can kind of beat up anybody. There's, no, there's just like this chanting like, take that Red Sea. And, and he's, he's childlike in his wonder as he looks at the world and sees that God is at work in it. And remember, Jesus praised childlikeness. He goes on, verse 17, the clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side, the crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind, your lightnings lighted up the world, the earth trembled and shook, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. I want to invite you, next time there's a really amazing summer Florida thunderstorm, just open up to Psalm 77 and just start praying these verses. Because there's there's something about the wonder in the poetry, right? It's not a lightning storm. It's, It's your arrows that are lighting up the world. And there's this grandiosity as he looks at God's work in the world. Because what remembering does is it delivers us from a a form of sensory deprivation where we become deaf and blind and numb to God's activity in our lives. I remember uh, when I was a little bit younger, I, I was in Alaska and I was riding on a train. And it was kind of one of those scenic tours. And, and as we were riding, um, there was something interesting that happened. If you were going straight, you could see out the windows on both sides and you could see some pretty amazing things. But it, it wasn't until the train kind of took a turn and curved a little bit that you could look behind you where you came from and notice how majestic the mountains really were that you were moving through. And remembering is similar to this. It's not until we've kind of gone through and we can look back and remember that we begin to say, oh, wow, God was at work all along. He wasn't absent. 
In the words of Charles Spurgeon, what we can do is when we cannot trace his hand, we can trust his heart that he really is writing a story and we really are characters in it. And so as we remember, we're able to kind of curve back to see how God has worked wonders in our world. One author puts it like this, the world will never starve for lack of wonders, but only for lack of wonder. It's around us all the time. It's just whether or not we're aware of it. It's whether or not we sense how wonderful the world is that we live in. But again, why is it that Asaph remembers the Exodus? Well, I think it's first because remembering reignites wonder and wonder rehabilitates our hearts. I think that's first and foremost why it is. But the Exodus in particular is significant because the Exodus was about God's remembrance. If you, if you know the story, Israel, God's people, were enslaved in Egypt. And in Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, it says this. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And so in Asaph's doubts, in the midst of his doubt about being forgotten by God, Asaph remembered that God remembers. And in remembering that God remembers, he's reminded of the covenant that God's made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a covenant that binds them together so much that God's identity becomes the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as God remembers this covenant, uh, he acts for his people. And so Asaph knows that if God remembered then, he will remember again. And that's what bolsters his heart with hope. Asaph recalls this grand narrative of God redeeming his people, setting them free from slavery to Pharaoh and leading them through the Red Sea. And likewise, you and I, we have a grander narrative that our lives fit within, a a grand story of redemption. And, And if you're familiar with that story of redemption, you know that the very coming of Jesus the Messiah was seen as evidence of God's remembrance. In in the Gospel of Luke, Mary, the mother of Jesus, at the annunciation of Jesus' birth, says this God has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Zechariah the priest says this when he's praising God for the Messiah. God will show the mercy promised to our fathers and remember his holy covenant. And so like the Exodus, Jesus' coming is actually seen as evidence that God remembered his people and has not forgotten them. And Jesus steps onto the world and he's fully God and fully man. And he lives with wide-eyed wonder at his father's world. I love it. In his parables, they're about birds and flowers and seeds and weeds. And you can just tell he's, he's intoxicated by how amazing God's wonderful world really is. In the words of Victor Hugo, Jesus did not study God. He was dazzled by him. And in Jesus' life as a, as a human being, you can sense there's this childlikeness about him. I said earlier that Jesus praised childlikeness, but what's significant about it is that children, unhindered, they just live with the sense of surprise and awe because everything is just amazing and new all the time. 
And I'm helped because I think that to be full of wonder, you must become childlike. And to become childlike in this weird, unexpected way is actually to become godlike. Now, I'm helped by the words of the 20th century English writer G.K. Chesterton. This is what he says. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exalt in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that, ev- that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never gotten tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy. For we have sinned and grow, grown old, and our father is younger than we. I love that picture of a God full of wonder at his own work. And Jesus lived with this childlike wonder. Fully God, fully man, wide-eyed wonder in his father's world. But that's not the only story of Jesus. The whole story is that he ends up becoming betrayed. And on the night when he was betrayed, he actually gave a meal that we're about to celebrate momentarily. Uh, And in that giving of the meal, he said, do this in remembrance of me. Because what he was doing is he was kicking off the new covenant. Now, again, if you, if you know the story of Scripture, in, in Jeremiah 31, it says that the astounding truth of the new covenant is not what God remembers, but God, what God won't remember. In Jeremiah 31, 34, it says this, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And so Jesus uh, is the only hope for sinners like you and I, because, because through Jesus, we bank on the, you could call it the selective amnesia of God. To remember us, but to not remember our sins. And as Jesus is dying on the cross, he's hanging there, and people all around him are mocking him. And I, and I love this story because the thief that's next to him, he, he looks to Jesus and he says this, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And you know that Jesus replied, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So the hope of sinners, people like you, people like me, is that Jesus will remember our sins no more. Not because our sins have been forgotten, but because they were remembered and removed in the death of Jesus. This new covenant in his blood. Now as we let the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus continually reshape our view of the world and ourselves and our suffering and our God, we will become a new community. We will become a wonderful community that exists in a doubtful world. And so if you'll bear with me for for a few more minutes as I close, uh, because this is the last sermon I get to preach in this sermon series, I want to just give you kind of a bookend of what I want to see this community become. Take it for what it's worth. I think that as we become this kind of wonderful community, it's only going to happen as we take up the book of Psalms and begin to pray them by ourselves and with one another. 
And so what I'm calling you to is to take this book and, and to place your ribbon in Psalm 1 and to kind of ribbon dance your way through Psalms all the way from 1 to 150. And as you do that, you take the words of the Psalms and you speak them. You say them out loud as you read it. And then you pause and you reflect and you meditate. And then you turn them into your own prayers of protest and praise. And if you have kids, have them join you in it. I still have a video of, that Trevor and Leah Houck sent me after last sermon series, I think it was, on the Psalms. And, and it's of their son, Hudson, who at the time was two years old, and he's reciting Psalm 1 from memory. This is possible. It's doable. But not only do we do this individually and as families, but we do it as a community. Our community groups actually have a practice of praying through the Psalms together. Because we know that community is actually really significant in God's plan, in God's story in this world. Look with me at verses 19 and 20 really quickly. The psalm ends like this. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. If you notice that, verse 20 is actually kind of anticlimactic, right? You've got like the crashing of thunder and the, the rolling uh, winds and the, the rain is pouring down and there's this light show that makes Disney fireworks look like sparklers and it's so grand of a spectacle. And then it ends with, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. But the psalmist is trying to make a point here. Because despite the spectacle of God's work, his footprints were unseen. The point he's making is that God uses people, faithful people, to work in the lives of others. The hand of Moses and Aaron. You, you know, if God's footprints were unseen, as verse 19 says, guess whose footprints were visible? Moses's, Aaron's, and the other million Israelites that walked through the Red Sea on dry land. Because God works through his people. In theological terms, God uses secondary causes to get his work done in the world. And so the reason why community is so important, the reason why we take up these psalms and pray them together with one another and for one another is because the way that God primarily works his wonders in this world is through his people in his redemptive hands. And so as you and I begin to protest and praise, we leave the footprints of God on this world. And as we do that, as we, uh, as we pray these psalms together, as we become a community of protest and praise, of, of celebration and lamentation, as the, the gospel goes forth mightily to do works of wonders in our world, uh, our neighbors, our communities will begin to flourish. And they might just join us in saying the words of verse 14, you are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. If you would, pray with me. Father God, the wonder-working God, the one who has made known your might, we pray now that you would continue to do wonders in our midst. You've redeemed your people. We ask that you'd continue that work of redemption as you draw men and women and children to yourself this very morning. Holy Spirit, that's your work. It's your work to awaken 
our slumbering hearts so that we might see and sense God's wonder in the world. First and foremost in Jesus. I pray that as we look at Christ on the cross, we would see the wonder of God. That he would be reconciling sinners to himself in the most wonderful work that's ever happened. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.